If anyone says that in the Mass a true and proper sacrifice is not offered to God, let him be anathema. If anyone says that the sacrifice of the Mass is only a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, or that it is a bare commemoration of the sacrifice consummated on the cross, but not a propitiatory sacrifice, or that it profits him only who receives, and that it should not be offered for the living and for the dead, for their sins, pains, and satisfactions, and others' necessities, let him be anathema. That comes from a Roman Catholic council, which took place in the 16th century, in the attempt to refute some of the doctrines of the Reformation. This council is referred to as the Council of Trent, and Trent, among many other things, dogmatically defined what the Roman Catholic Church means by the Mass. When I was in college, uh, many of my non-Christian friends on the football team uh, would ask me about church a lot, you know, just making casual conversation, they would ask me about church. And it was not uncommon for them to refer to my church as Mass. What time does your Mass begin? Or how are things going at Mass? Now, is that correct? Do evangelicals have a Mass? Is the Mass just another name for the Lord's Supper? What is a Mass? There are actually many differences between an evangelical Lord's Supper and a Roman Catholic Mass, but the quotes that I selected from the Council of Trent highlight what I think is perhaps the most important difference. Namely, that Rome has turned the sacrament into a literal, real sacrifice. It is not a commemoration. It is not a memory. It is a real, actual, literal sacrifice. According to Rome, Christ is literally dying every single day. And that is the primary difference between us and the Mass. In other words, the real question is whether we should think of the Lord's Supper as, as Trent called it, a propitiatory sacrifice. Propitiation means to turn away the wrath of God. So a propitiatory sacrifice means it is a sacrifice that actually forgives your sins. It is a real sacrifice that forgives sins. So that is the question before us today. Is the Lord's Supper a memorial of a past sacrifice which forgave sins? Or is the Lord's Supper itself an actual present sacrifice that forgives your sins? And as you heard at the beginning, Trent makes it abundantly clear that the Mass is to be understood as a literal present sacrifice. Let me quote from Trent again. In this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, that same Christ is contained and sacrificed in an unbloody manner, who once offered himself in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross. The Holy Synod teaches that this sacrifice is truly propitiatory. For the Lord, appeased by the offering, forgives even heinous crimes and sins. For the victim is one and the same. The same now offering by the ministry of priests, who then offered himself on the cross, the manner of offering alone being different. The fruits indeed of which, oblation of that bloody one to it, are received most plentifully through this unbloody one. 
so far as this is latter from derogating in any way from that former oblation. Wherefore, not only for the sins, punishments, satisfactions, and other necessities of the faithful who are living, but also for those who are departed in Christ and who are not as yet fully purified, it is rightly offered, agreeably to a tradition of the apostles. So according to the Roman Catholic Church, the priests of the church, those who are serving in the ministry of the priesthood, bring Christ down from heaven and put him on the altar. And they sacrifice him. And this sacrifice, this offering to God, this sacrifice to God, appeases God's wrath so that it forgives whoever it's being offered for, even the most heinous of sins. That includes the dead. You can offer the Mass to forgive the sins of the dead who are suffering in purgatory. The council recognizes that, yes, this sacrifice certainly looks different than Jesus's. Right? How, could, how could this literally be Jesus' sacrifice? Jesus died on a cross. There's no cross here. Jesus had a body. There's no body here. Jesus bled a lot. There's no blood here. And what did the council maintain? The substance of the sacrifice is the same. It's just a different mode of presentation. So Jesus had a bloody sacrifice. The mass is an unbloody sacrifice. But they're the same sacrifice. It's an actual sacrifice that's forgiving your sins. It just looks different. In light of all of this, we ought to be able to conclude that the Mass is not the Lord's Supper at all, but is actually quite a blasphemous distortion of it. As John Calvin famously said, the Supper was altogether buried when it was turned into the Mass. And there is no better vindication of John Calvin's assessment, in my opinion, than the book of Hebrews today. So that is our task. The book of Hebrews, specifically looking at passages in chapters 7 through 10, is going to show us that there is no way the Roman Mass is the sacrifice of Christ. And we're going to look at two primary refutations from the book of Hebrews. Let us begin with Hebrews chapter 7. Would you open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7? As you turn there, I just remind you that... Uh, we normally, if, if you're a visitor with us, today's sermon is a little different than it normally goes. Uh, we're doing a topical thing today, just in light of uh, Reformation Sunday. Uh, so that's why we're taking a break for, for those of you who've been with us. That's why we're taking a break from Ephesians today. So today's more of a topical thing. We're, we're going to be looking at a lot of different texts rather than just preaching through one text. Um, so I just encourage you, if, if you don't like the style today, you don't have to put up with it that often, okay? But nonetheless, even though we're looking at a lot of texts, we'll use this as kind of our primary one. So I would nonetheless invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 28. Actually, let's begin in verse 22. Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 22. Thus saith the Lord, This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. 
For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. In chapter 7 through 10, the author of Hebrews gives a deep examination of the sacrifice of Christ, and specifically in light of its relationship to the Old Testament sacrificial system. What relationship does, does Calvary have with Moses? That's essentially what is being covered in Hebrews chapter 7 through Hebrews chapter 10. And as I argued, I see two primary arguments against the Roman Mass through these chapters. And the first one we're going to look at today is that the sacrifice of Christ needed only one priest. The sacrifice of Christ only needed the authority of one priest. Now, before I explain that, let me just, let's just briefly take a look at all of the ways that Christ, in this passage we just read, is superior to the Old Testament sacrifices. That's what Hebrews is trying to do. He's trying to show us why you Hebrews, you don't need the temple anymore. You don't need the blood of bulls and, and, and goats and calves anymore. You've got something better. So how is Christ better than Judaism? And he gives a handful of ways that Christ, the priest, is way better than any of the Jewish high priests. He gives a number of examples. For, for example, he begins that Christ is superior in that he is immortal. Look at verses 23 through 25 with me again. The former priests were many in number. You had to have a lot of them. Why? Because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, speaking of Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So what are the consequences of a priest who never dies? Verse 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. A priest who dies and is no longer able to offer you a sacrifice is not a priest who can save you to the uttermost. But Jesus can't die. He conquered death. He lives forever. And so his priesthood actually can save you. He is superior because he is immortal. A second way he is superior is that he is perfect. Look at verses 26 and 27. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The priests of the Old Testament were sinners. They weren't just offering a sacrifice for your sins. They were offering a sacrifice for their own sins. And they had to do this every single day. Christ, on the other hand, had one single sacrifice only for yours and not for his. He had no sins that needed to be forgiven. He was wholly unstained and separated from sinners. He is perfect. And the last very important way that Christ's priesthood is superior to the Jewish priests is what we've already hinted at, that he offers a far superior sacrifice himself. Read verse 27. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all, when he offered up an unblemished lamb, a goat, a bull, what did Christ offer up? 
himself. Isn't this amazing? Christ is both priest and sacrifice. He offers up something which makes him the priest and he offers up himself which makes him the sacrifice. He fulfills both roles. He is the priest making the offering and he is the offering. So how is the superior? In the Old Testament, what was quote-unquote dying for your sins? Beasts. Farm animals. In the New Testament, who's dying for your sins? The Son of God. He, he, by the way, he emphasizes this. Turn just briefly to Hebrews chapter 9 and look at verse 11 through 14 with me. This is so important to him. He comes back to this very point, that the superiority of the blood of Christ over the blood of bulls. Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of deviled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If a beast is able to make you ceremonially clean, how much more is the perfect son of God able to make you spiritually clean? That's his point. We have a superior priest and a superior sacrifice. That is why you do not go back to Judaism. Your sacrifice is better. Your priesthood is better. Now, how does all of this relate to the Mass? How does all of this relate to our first point that Christ only needed one priest? We know from, this, from these texts that the Mass is blasphemous because a key element of the Mass is that a properly ordained priest is the one who alone has the ability to offer Christ on the altar. This is why uh, a Roman Catholic would not say that our supper is valid. Because I have not been, had laid hands on me and given the grace of the priesthood. And since I am not an ordained priest, I do not have the authority to offer a sacrifice because that would priests do. So that's why they would say our communion is not valid. There's no sacrifice here because you don't have a priest. You've just got some schmuck who's called a pastor. But you don't have a priest. And so what has happened here is that Christ is now no longer the sole priest involved in his own sacrifice. Christ now needs successors. He now needs a co-priest. He needs other priests to carry along this work for him now. The Roman Mass takes away from Christ's sufficiency as the sole priest by introducing us a new rotation of priests who have to offer the sacrifice. So what they've done is Christ, who once had two offices, the priest who offers and the sacrifice, he's now lost one of those offices. He is now merely the sacrifice. Someone else is offering him now. They've taken the priesthood away from Christ and they've put it in the hands of another rotation of sinful mortal men who die and have to be replaced. You know what that sounds like? Judaism. By the way, if, if you don't believe me, think that I may be misinterpreting 
the Roman Catholic system, I, I think that the two quotes we've read have been pretty sufficient. But let me read you one of the canons from the Council of Trent. If anyone says that by those words, do this in remembrance of me, Christ did not institute the apostles as priests or did not ordain that they and other priests should offer his own body and blood. Let him be anathema. I did not capitalize that his. The Council of Trent capitalized that his. What are they saying? There are other priests now who have the authority to offer up the sacrifice of Christ. Other priests are involved in the supper. As a matter of fact, I don't have this on the screen for you. It's a little lengthy, but I think it's worth reading. Now, let me be fair. This is not official Roman Catholic dogma, but this is one of the most popular books ever written, and it's never been condemned. A Roman Catholic scholar by the name of John O'Brien wrote a book called The Faith of Millions. And in it, he has a chapter where he talks about how glorious the Roman Catholic priesthood is. Let me read for you what he says. When the priest announces the tremendous words of consecration, he reaches up into the heavens and brings Christ down from his throne and places him upon our altar to be offered up again as the victim for the sins of man. It is a power greater than that of the saints and angels, greater than that of seraphim and cherubim. Indeed, it is greater even than the power of the Virgin Mary. While the Blessed Virgin was the human agency by which Christ became incarnate one single time, on the other hand, the priest brings Christ down from heaven and renders him present on our altars as the eternal victim for sins of man, not once, but a thousand times. The priest speaks, and lo, Christ the eternal and omnipotent God bows his head in humble obedience to the priest's command. Of what sublime dignity is the office of the Christian priest who is thus privileged to act as the ambassador and the vicegerent of Christ on earth. He continues the essential ministry of Christ. He teaches the faithful with the authority of Christ. He pardons the penitent sinner with the power of Christ. He offers up again the same sacrifice of adoration and atonement which Christ offered on Calvary. No wonder that the name which spiritual writers are especially fond of applying to the priest is that of the altar Christus. For the priest is and should be called another Christ. That is utter blasphemy. But it is the logical conclusion of the doctrine of the Mass. Because in the Mass, we need two priests. We need Christ and then another priest to offer up the priest who offered up himself. Only, what is the priest that we're now supplementing Christ with? A mortal sinner who will one day be prevented from office by death and will need another person to take his place. Let me put it simply. Let's summarize this first point simply. If the sacrifice which forgives your sins needed more than one priest, then it isn't the sacrifice of Christ. I don't know what it is, but it isn't the sacrifice of Christ. If the sacrifice which forgives your sins is offered by many different priests as death prevents one from continuing, then whatever it is, it's not the sacrifice of Christ. Therefore, the Mass does not offer the sacrifice of Christ. But I think the book of Hebrews makes an even stronger point than this. An even stronger argument. The first point was that the sacrifice of Christ only needed one priest. 
stronger point, the sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ was once for all. The sacrifice of Christ was a one-time offering. It doesn't need to be repeated. And I'm going to make the point that the author of Hebrews could not be more clear or more emphatic that any sacrifice which needs to be repeated is an insufficient sacrifice for your salvation. We already read this in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27. Just look with me just real briefly at that. This was already shown up in our text. What did he say in 727? He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this, what? Once for all, when he offered up himself. So we've already seen this, but the author of Hebrews comes back to this, and he just really digs his heels in. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23, and then we're going to read through a little bit just into verse 10, or chapter 10, I mean. Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 23, and then we'll read just a little bit into chapter 10. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with the better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with the blood not of his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? Let's stop there. How can we summarize this? If a sacrifice needs to be repeated, then it's imperfect and it didn't work. The author of Hebrews thinks if it's a true sacrifice, it only needs to happen once, and then you have no, remi no remembrance of sin anymore. If a sacrifice has to take place every year, or every month, or every week, or every day, then all it can be is a memorial. Right? Because what does he say? Look with me in verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. If you're going to repeat a sacrifice, you can only do so memorially, not really, not literally. Only as a remembrance. But if an actual sacrifice needs repeating, it's not forgiving any sins. It's not working. This is why Christ only dying once is so important to the author of Hebrews. If Christ had to suffer more than once, if he had to die more than once, then his sacrifice couldn't be sufficient. It couldn't be superior to what we were already getting in the Old Testament. And by the way, that's why he comes back to this in chapter 10. He comes back to this point. Stay in chapter 10, but look at verses 10 through 14 with me. And by that will, you, forgive me, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. 
And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you see the way he is hammering this point? Once for all, one time, single offering. A repetitive sacrifice can not save. So how does this relate to the doctrine of the Mass? The logical conclusion of the doctrine of the Mass is that Christ is being sacrificed again and again and again, hundreds of times all around the world, every day. According to the Mass, Christ must come down from heaven and onto every Roman Catholic altar every time the priest summons him, and that happens on a daily basis. Christ is coming down onto an altar to be sacrificed millions of times every year. This means that we have turned, we have not only replicated Christ now, right? So the one single Christ who's supposed to be in heaven now turns into millions of Christ in all these different churches all around the world. We've now not only replicated Christ, but we have to replicate his sacrifice and offer it every single day all around the world. Just like the Jewish sacrifices, apparently it needs to be repeated again and again and again. You go to Mass, you're forgiven, you go home, you commit a mortal sin, what do you have to do the next day? You got to go to confession, you got to do penances, you got to go to Mass. Now you're forgiven again. Oh, but you committed a mortal sin, what do you got to do? You got to go to confession, you got to go to Mass. Constantly being cleansed by the blood of Christ and never being perfectly purified. Needing this repetitious sacrifice over and over again. Again, this is Judaism. This is not the sacrifice of Christ who on the cross, what were his final words? It is finished. He did not say this must be ongoing. He did not say this is the first of many. It's done. That's why we can repeat our supper. We can do this every week because it's a memorial. It's a reminder of Christ. If we actually believed it was a sacrifice, we could not do it every week because that happened once for all in the past. Uh, by the way, the last thing that needs to be noticed is how in all of these texts from Hebrews dealing with Christ's offering, not a single one ever mentions anything about the Eucharist. Not a single time in the book of Hebrews does the Lord's Supper ever come up contextually. Isn't it interesting? If, if the author of Hebrews had the doctrine of the Mass in mind, He's writing nearly an entire book just dedicated to how we receive the benefits of the sacrifice of Christ. And he forgot the most important thing. How did, that, how did he forget? How did that not come up? How does the Lord's Supper not come up in Hebrews when the whole point is how the sacrifice of Christ is applied to us and is sufficient? Obviously, the author of Hebrews is not operating with the doctrine of the Mass in his head. Nothing could be further from his head. This is a later novel invention. It's a development. It is not New Testament understanding of the sacrifice of Christ. It is not what the book of Hebrews presents us. The author of Hebrews would repudiate the Mass. Why? Because the author of Hebrews presents to us a finished work, not a repetitious Mass. The author of Hebrews presents to us a perfect priest who lives forever and has no need of successors or help. While the Mass gives us another rotation of sinful priests who will be prevented from office by death. 
The sacrifice of Christ simply cannot be the Roman Catholic Mass. It can't be. Perhaps the most important way for us to sort of end this discussion is by reminding ourselves why this matters so much. I think there's more than one answer to that, but for our answer today, I want us to stick with the flow of thought that the author of Hebrews gives us. When we, as Calvin says, bury the supper and turn it into the mass, what do we lose? What are we losing when we do that? And the answer is our hope, our assurance. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 25 with me. This is the conclusion. This is the therefore. Now that we have established that Christ offered a once for all sacrifice, that he is a permanent priest who lives forever and saves us to the uttermost, what is the therefore? Verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to loving good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Notice he, in, in 19 through 25, he gives us the blood of Christ by which we have entered into the holy places. And he gives us a great high priest in the house of God. He's given us the two things we've looked at. The priesthood of Christ and the once for all sacrifice of Christ. And what flows from that? We enter into the holy place with confidence. We hold fast to our confession of hope with assurance. The consequences of the mass is you lose your ground for hope. You lose your ground for assurance. Because Christ's work is finished, that means it's sufficient. So it's where all of our hope comes from. Unlike in the Roman church, where you can be cleansed by the blood of Christ thousands of times in your life and still die impure. We believe the blood of Christ only has to cleanse us once. It cleanses us perfectly, and this is the ground of our assurance. We do not rely on repetitive sacrifices. We do not rely on mortal and imperfect priests. We rely on a perfect and finished sacrifice. We rely on an immortal high priest who is perfect in all of his ways. As long as we are united to Christ by faith, we can receive the benefits of a once-for-all sacrifice. We don't need him to die over and over again. As long as we believe in Christ by faith, we have access to the benefits of a single sacrifice. We don't need it again. And this is where we draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. This is why we hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. If our priest is not immortal, and if our sacrifice needs repetition, then we are not able to draw near with full assurance. 